Hello, Gathering Church. Welcome back through the video screen. I want to thank everyone who was able to make it for our first live and in-person worship service last week. Uh, we just appreciated that. The, the weather wasn't uh, fantastic, but it was okay. And we were able to worship together our entire planned service. I want to thank everyone who was willing to offer their voice and their words to help make that service a memorable community-focused um, morning. Uh, just appreciate uh, the different ways that you have been journeying with COVID and wrestling with either being a newcomer to the church or um, we heard some words about uh, somebody who had given birth in the midst of COVID and how the church is meaningful even when we're scattered like we are, even when we can't gather as much as we would like. I just want to thank everyone who was able to, to participate. And for those who weren't, there's another opportunity. We're going to try this again next Sunday, November 1st at 11 a.m. back at Hidden Acres. So if the weather uh, cooperates, uh, we're going to be out there again in our lawn chairs, uh, dress warm, dress appropriately for that morning, and we hope to gather again. Um, as always, the announcement of weather service is going to be live at Hidden Acres will be posted by 9 a.m. next Sunday. So make sure you check the website before you head out to Hidden Acres. And we hope that it works and we hope that we can see you all there again. Um, this morning, we are going to be talking about uh, more about the church, about our se the series on the community of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the where of church. Um, as in, where is the church headed? Where is the church going? Kind of a future-focused sermon, which is always um, very challenging and difficult to try to guesstimate or look at into what, where the church might be headed. Um, how does the church need to continue to shift and adapt to our changing world? And I think anytime you ask those questions, it brings up a whole host of other questions like, why does the church need to keep changing at all? Why this constant uh, reinvention? Haven't we figured out how to do and be church after 2,000 years of trying? Shouldn't we maybe just try to go back to the good old days? Uh, but then where were they? Were the good old days when we were youth and we loved our fun church? Uh, or maybe the good old days were when our parents were young and they were building all of these churches and they had this sense of, of um, creating and establishing churches in a community. Or maybe it's all the way back. Maybe it's back to the where of the early church, which we read about in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Do we need to make the church great again? So if you know me uh, and my strange sense of humor, you'll know that I'm kind of giving away my bias in those sarcasm-infused statements. Uh, the early church was amazing. It was There was miraculous events happening through the apostles, uh, seemingly every day, and new people, as we read in Acts 2, were being drawn into the church every single day as the message of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power was going out. In Acts 2, it says that those early believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There were many wonders and signs performed by the apostles that, you know, all the believers were together. They had everything in common they even sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. There was an incredible radical generosity. They met daily in the temple, and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Now, that's a glowing account of church. I think if anyone, if anyone had spoken that way about the gathering church, we would just be so thrilled that that is what's happening. This is a glowing account for any church. But the church 
didn't stay in this idyllic state for long. Even the early church didn't stay in that place, in that space for long. Challenges from both inside the community, um, you know, theological debates, uh, questions about who's in and who's out, um, those started really early and also pressures from outside, from the culture. As you welcome more people in and there's wrestles with the culture, what's adapted, what's, what's adopted and what's rejected, um, all of those problems plus, um, plus problems from the, the wider culture who didn't understand this new movement and saw it as a threat to the empire. All of those things meant that eventually the early church was scattered, they were spread out. And this centralizing and unifying uh, embodiment that they had all things together, that characteristic of the early church quickly, um, quickly vanished. And now they were local churches set up all over the place. The geographical diversity was coupled with a missionary effort. Uh, Jesus entrusted the apostles to begin to spread this gospel to the ends of the earth. And so many non-Jewish folks began to accept this message, this way of Jesus, and they sought to live the way of Christ. But they did so in their own social, from their own cultural contexts. They didn't immediately become Jewish, but they were wrestling with how do I live this Jesus way with what I know, who I am, where I'm beginning, where I'm starting. And so that complicates things even more. Culturally embedded Christianity always complicates things. It creates tension between old methods and new methods. It forces variety into interpretation and practice. And guess what? Christianity is always culturally embedded. Your Christianity, my Christianity, is at least partly influenced by the culture in which we live. As a part of a pastor's seminary education, we take a course called Gospel, Church, and Culture. And it explores this tight-knit relationship that exists between these three things. The message of the gospel, the church, the embodiment of that message, and the culture where the church is embodied and lives within. It's this relationship that, that, that connects and intertwines with one another. And the, the aim of the course is to equip pastors to navigate the ever-changing landscape and beginning with that strong foundation of the gospel. You begin with the gospel, you move it into the church, the church moves it into the culture, and you see what variety, what comes about. When we ask the question of where the church is going then, or should be going in the future, it helps to also be examining where culture is going. You want to lift your head and look outside and look around. Where is culture going? Where is culture headed? And how can the church, or how should the church be called to influence and adapt to that shifting. And so we see this willingness, uh, you might think, well, that's a new problem and they didn't used to deal with that, but we see this willingness, this necessity to be a community that is able to adapt in the book of Acts itself. As Luke recounts these early days, how the church is formed and how it moves and it takes shape, um, the, these early community of Christ followers, we, we read some of this adapting and some of this shifting happening quite early. In Acts 10, 9-16, Peter has this vision. And it's of the sheep coming down and covering all of these animals. And as you're reading this, if you're not steeped in Jewish culture, you don't really know what's happening until, until it's explained. But in this vision, uh, Peter hears God saying, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So Peter's actually having this argument with God, clean and unclean, which animals can I eat and which, which can't I? And this curtain is falling over all the animals. And, and Peter has this debate with God. 
And this, this vision repeats three times for Peter, and it kind of clicks for Peter. And what Peter realizes is, I, if God has called me to the Gentiles, then I must go. Even if I think that they're unclean, that they're maybe unworthy of this message of Jesus, God has considered them worthy, and so I must go. And so Peter ends up going and preaching Jesus Christ to a Gentile family. And it would have seen by, seen by Jewish people that, that this family was, they were heathen, they were unworthy of God, but this family believes in Jesus. They accept the message, and the church expands. This is like a bomb dropping in the church in the best possible way because now the message just begins to spread rapidly. And I think this is an expansion of the church, not just in people and in, in new people accepting, but also in perspective. From an exclusive Jewish-based religion that was housed in Jerusalem, where you know all adherents were of the same cultural background, the same understanding of Scripture and Torah, to this expansive, geographically and culturally a rich tapestry with the goal of including every nation, tribe, and tongue. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile. So blowing apart those distinctions that meant everything up until that point. There's neither slave nor free. So addressing this cultural social dynamic that exists in the world, this hierarchy, there's no, no longer male or female. So that's supposed to be tearing apart that patriarchal, patriarchal understanding that the men are above the women in some way. It's, it's taking all of that apart. And he says, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. And so this is just a revolutionary teaching. It, it represents a leap in thought in the Hebrew understanding of what it means to be promise uh, holders and promise sharers. This is an expansion from a social and cultural hierarchy. Basically, you know, you had to be born into this privilege of promise. So what, if you were born into the right family, you just happened to be Jewish. You had all of these wonderful promises described to you. And if you happen to be born in another family, tough luck for you. And I think in modern day, we can, we have, we're having these same kinds of debates. You happen to be born from a certain tribe or a certain color, and you have all of these privileges associated with that, that you didn't earn, that you don't deserve, they're just given to you as blessing. And here in scripture, we have this sense that, that for the Christians, for the people that follow Jesus, those social systems began to fall away. And they said, no, 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 wait, we are all one. And so it's not about who, what family we were born into, it's about what we accept and who we how we decide to live our lives. We are all heirs to the promise. And can we live into that? Where the church is going, can we understand that? Understand that we haven't yet achieved that in, our, in the way that we live our lives, in our culture, in our society, in our structures and systems, and even in the church. So this understanding of, of adopted family, that the promise bridges race, it bridges gender, it bridges social separation. People were to be considered equal in Christ. And then Paul elsewhere actually expands this understanding further. He takes this radical vision of balancing blessing in an unequal society. And then he writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that those considered to have less or who are lower are actually meant to be given greater honor in the church. This is an upside-down kingdom that God has established. 
It's, it, he writes, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we consider less honorable, we treat with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with special modesty, whereas our presentable parts have no such need. But God has composed the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. What an adaptive and incredibly generous vision for the future destiny of the community of Christ. Now, when Paul is writing this, is it true? Is it true in first century Jerusalem were all the Christians uh, living this way? Absolutely not. This is a visionary um, preaching and teaching from Paul. As he encountered Christ and as he lived it out and as he preached to these Gentiles, his vision expanded. His understanding of how incredibly uh, generous the gospel is actually reformed his thinking. And I believe we all need to take that journey of reforming our thinking, patterning our thoughts away from society, away from these culturally imposed hierarchical systems, and into this way of oneness, of equality, that Paul writes about, that Jesus was offering us. So do we still need to move into the where of Paul's vision of the community of Christ? Do we yet need to be praying that the Father that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I do. I'm one of those people who still prays those things, who's praying into those things even more now. As we see some of the injustice that's happening, as we see some of the division that is kind of tearing even families apart in today's day and age, uh, this, this prayer that we recognize that, that we are equal and that we are one, I think that needs to be core to the way that we're praying today. A quote from a a book, a chapter in a book, it was suggested to me by James Watson. And James actually teaches gospel church and culture right now at Tyndale Seminary. So it's kind of a good inside lens for us. Um, he, write, he wrote in a book called The Missionary Movement in Christian History. He writes this, In Christ, God accepts us together with our group relations, with that cultural conditioning that makes us feel at home in one part of society and less at home in another. And so you were born, he's saying you were born into a family, into a society, into a way of living, um, and that's okay. That's God accepts you, Christ accepts you in your group. And then it goes on. But if he takes us with our group relations, then surely it follows that he takes us with our disrelations. He takes us with those predispositions, those prejudices, those suspicions and hostilities, whether justified or not which mark the group to which we belong. He does not wait to tidy up our ideas any more than he waits to tidy up our behavior before he accepts us into his family. And that's the end of the quote. So it's this sense, what he's saying is, um, we all start somewhere and there's work. Uh, this, this vision that Paul's talking about is, is a beautiful vision, but we don't just arrive as soon as we accept Christ. Christ accepts us with all of the thoughts and all the ideas that we have given to us by our culture, by our context, by the group that we're formed into. Um, but God doesn't leave us there. And so while we are accepted, while we are brought into the family with our prejudices, with our you know maybe feelings of superiority over others, Jesus continues to work on those things as he loves us. So the where of church has always been about the gospel being delivered through the church to the changing culture that the church finds itself. And it's the same today. The future of the church is increasingly global. And yet, 
it's increasingly local in feel and look. And so as the church spreads across, across the globe and increases its reach, and in, and in fact, most of the areas where the church is most expansive are not in North America anymore. And so the church is just spreading over the, over the face of this globe. But at the same time, it's increasingly becoming local in its feel, in its look, in its form, in its method. While certain core foundational elements of Christianity will always mark our unity and should always mark our unity, the colonization of one culture's version of Christianity will fall away more and more as more and more believers deconstruct the ways that Christ has been co-opted by their particular cultural norms. No, Jesus likely did not have long, flowing blonde hair and striking blue eyes, like maybe a picture that you've seen in North America. No, churches don't need these giant buildings with these huge steeples and beautiful artwork in the, in the windows to be a legitimate expression of Christ's message, of his love, of his beauty and hope. And I think this is one of the things that we so often um, mess up or get wrong in our Christian lives. That we appropriate something that is culturally true for us as being a truth of the gospel. And then we share the gospel packaged in our culture in a way that actually becomes um, strange or tasteless or ineffective to somebody from a completely different culture. And so the way forward for the church is to continue deconstructing the ways that our culture has influenced um, how we share the gospel. Another quote from Andrew Walls' book, it talks about each culture's work at contextualizing the gospel. And he refers to the rapid changes in the early church. He says, did they, these Jewish Christians, this first generation church, realize that the future of Messiah's proclamation now lay with people who were uncircumcised, were defective in their knowledge of the law and the prophets. They didn't grow up reading it. They were defective in, uh, in terms of their understandings of the gods. They were confused by hangovers from paganism. They were able to eat pork without batting an eye. And yet this was the direct result of a decision from the Jerusalem Council to allow Gentile converts a place to feel at home. This is their church too. We want them to have a place to feel at home. And so also was the acceptance of Paul's emphatic teaching that since God accepts the heathen as they are, circumcision, food avoidances, ritual washings are actually not for them. Christ has so made himself at home in Corinthian society that actually one of these pagans is consecrated through his or her Christian marriage partner. And that's in 1 Corinthians 7. So if you're a husband and your wife believes, you are actually made right as well in Paul's understanding of how expansive this good news is. So then he goes on in this quote to say, No group of Christians has therefore any right to impose in the name of Christ upon another group of Christians a set of assumptions about life determined by another time and place. So to summarize that, he's saying, we don't actually have the right to tell another group of Christians how to live their life. But that is now their work. We bring the, the message of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, and we empower that group of people to embody that, to do the cultural contextual work, to discover what is theirs to do. How can they embody, how can they incarnate Christ in their culture? Because Christ has already accepted them. This is a beautiful understanding 
of how the church can expand and how the church can grow and maybe must grow in the future. We aren't in the first century Corinth anymore. We aren't in Rome. We're not, we're in, not in, even in America. So we often try to look to America and borrow ideas from them. We are in Kitchener. And so part of our role as Christians in this time and in this place is to offer the good news to our corner of the world in ways that are both authentic to the gospel and culturally relevant. We at The Gathering, we're a younger church. Uh, we have a heart and a passion for local mission. And we live this with this kind of rare, relatively rare tension. We're attempting to be an authentic presence in a community, a particular place, where many of us don't actually live in that place. And so there's a tension there, and we need to acknowledge that. We need to realize that. Sharing the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ, inviting others to follow him, is an important part of the vision of the gathering. And we believe it's best done through the authenticity of our loving, supportive, and caring relationships with our friends, with our neighbors. And so the gospel is transmitted through the authenticity of the relationships we build. And so are we building those relationships? Are we doing a good job with that? Our future together involves sharing the good news of the gospel in relevant ways to the varying cultures that we are in fact ministering to. It would be a mistake to assume that when we go into Chandler Mode, into this community, everyone shares a common cultural understanding. Um, everyone kind of thinks the same and hears words the same and understands the same. We are not all the same. And so we need to do a little bit of work. Perhaps part of our future is learning how our language, learning how our programs, learning even about how we think of our role in Chandler, how all of that is being experienced, how it's being heard by our neighbors. And I think that will keep us humble. That will keep us receptive to making important changes that will help, help us stay authentic, help us stay effective and relevant in the community. Learning about how issues like poverty, addiction, LGBTQ, and racism, how these things affect the lives of those we live with alongside, that's an important journey for us as a missional church who long to reach out in a spirit of genuine understanding and of care. And I would add that a future consideration for us ought to be a willingness to share not only our time, not only our money, but also our power with those who we seek to minister to and alongside. So how can we begin to share power, to give voice, to elevate voice? And I think those are questions for our future. And these are maybe a few potential pathways forward. Things that I've heard, I didn't just come up with these, but I've, I've heard these from congregants, I've heard these from you. I would echo myself as ways to continue serving one another in healthy and loving ways. These are where, where it's kind of like the where we could go as a church family. Pope Francis, reflecting on the church, said, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty. Because, and you might say, what? That, that does not sound like the church vision that we uh, would share. But he says, because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. And so that's from the leader of the Catholic Church, which is the leader of one of the largest groups of people organizing around the name of Christ. He says he prefers a church that knows what it is to do ministry. So a second thing that I have here is 
the church might be called to get closer to the people that we long to serve. We can serve generously. We can give what we have back to the world with open hands and open hearts. Those early Christians would sell their houses. They would sell their possessions in order that there would be enough for the community. The church planting and missional movements within the church, they seem to be beckoning the church to get scary close, to become the flesh and blood of Christ, embodying the things we talk about on Sunday in our daily lives with our neighbors. So no longer is it enough to come together on church on a Sunday, hear a good message, you go home and you're fine. But it's about how do we actually live these things that we say we believe in front of other people in a way that changes their mind and their life as well. I want to read a short thought from a man called Chris Paluski. He's the president and CEO of Bethany Christian Services. Um, it's, this is a ministry focused on providing family supports to those in need. Um, he reflects on Matthew 25. So this is a ministry that is all about family and trying to connect people who don't have family with families. And it's based on this Christian understanding that we need to do life together. And he, he says this, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about sorting all people on earth into two groups, sheep and goats. He praises the sheep and condemns the goats. Jesus explains why he calls the sheep righteous. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Jesus' message in Matthew 25 is simple. We're called to love God by loving people who are in difficult situations. It's not enough to preach about Jesus' love. We need to walk the talk. When we act kindly towards someone who is vulnerable, we are doing it for Jesus. There is a sobering gap between the way Jesus sees people and the way the world sees people. And until every person is safe, loved, and connected, we need to stand up, speak out, and advocate for one another. And it means offering our food, our time, and our treasure to those whose needs are greater than our own. He writes, I have seen lives utterly transformed through the basic principles of biblical hospitality. I've seen broken families built up again. I've seen new families created. I've seen children reunited with their family members who they once thought were dead. Jesus' message in Matthew 25 goes so much deeper than inviting hungry strangers in and feeding them. It's not the meal that is important. It's the love and care that the meal represents. Service extends beyond tangible gifts to the intangible being seen and loved and valued for being a child of God. In church, when we, when we do what we do as a church, when we decide how can we serve, how can we help, it is with that in mind. That it's not just food security that we're trying to address. And our com community and partners know that about us. It's always about the relationship. The food is beautiful and it's good and it's needed and we will do it. But we also want to be involved. We want to get to know. We want to relate. We want to learn. We want to get to know people because we believe that to be seen and loved and valued is part of our work as the hands and feet of Christ. So another thought that I have here is, is that this responsibility, whose responsibility is this movement, is this where of the future of church. And I want to think back to the who of church. Who is the church? And that answer is at least partly it's you and I. But I would never say that it's all up to us. Um, the vision is far too bold and beautiful for us to imagine getting there on our own. We were never meant to. Where the church goes in the future is a team effort. It's been designed to bring glory to Christ, and we can gain strength in the realization that it's ultimately up to Christ. 
And since Christ chooses to work in and through us, it's also up to us. We who are the church, the agents through which the transformation and change can occur. Christ is the leader, the spirit is the enabler, and we are the channels through which transformation can come. And that happens to ourselves first. We experience that ourselves. And then we join another, hey, have you experienced that? And we, we join together in a local expression of the transformed ones. And then together, we, that change is always meant to reach out in positive ways. How can we share this with others, this, this great thing we've experienced? So although the exact wear of the church must remain fuzzy and foggy, kind of like looking through a glass darkly, the way that this future will be created is, is known. Uh, in Zechariah 4, 6, it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That's his way. It's by his spirit. It's the enabling and insp inspiring of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ. Tim Burnett, who is a, a contemplative philosopher, is a theologian and a writer, uh, he offers a creative way to imagine how God actually does this. How does he move us into this future? How does he create? And he, he writes this, and I, I wanted to share it with you because it was different. It was unique, and you might not have thought of it this way. Think of the power of poetry. It doesn't lie in communicating a proposition to be asserted as true or untrue. Its real power lies in the aesthetic allure of the words and the ideas themselves in the same sense that they evoke something in the reader. To be moved by a poem is not the same as being moved by, say, a pool stick. The moving element in a poem moves us in a fundamentally different way than a coercive force. Its power lies in its evocative, alluring, and value-saturated invitation to the reader. This is the way that God deepens beauty in and actually saves the universe as a poet. It's simultaneously both God's activity and God's leadership style. When love becomes associated with power in any sort of domineering or colonizing way, we can be sure that it is not love, at least not the love displayed by God or the love seen in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Authentic love is self-giving, and in this kind of giving is true allure and true power. Monitoring our internal motivations can help us to stay in the flow of love as we lead. So are we grasping for power and affirmation? Or are we giving out of the surplus of the very loving God within us? So where the church is going, it's up to Christ and the poetic ways that he is loving the world back to himself but it's also up to us. I want to switch here from this macro level of where the, the church is going uh, in this question of where to the micro level, the, the question of where we're going in our own lives. Author and pastor Erwin McManus spoke on this theme and he says, to hope is to be human. Then hope is built on the future. Therefore, we are future-oriented people. Not only future-oriented, but creators of the future. He quotes Hebrews 11 that says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. He writes, You are created by God to create the future. In the same way that a silkworm creates silk, humans create futures. What do you think your choices do? The choices you make today create the future you will live tomorrow. 
And then he says, you just should be thankful that God is also choosing and overriding a lot of our destructive choices. You are a future creator. I love that. I love that inspiring word to all of us, that we actually have the power to change, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Paul says. We each play a part in the renewing of this creation. I want to say, even if all we get around to is renewing our own selves, our own way of thinking, and we move from the death-dealing mechanisms of the empires of this world into the way of Christ, the way of gracious, self-giving love, that will be a lot. That will be enough. As a way to bring these concepts closer to our daily lives, kind of down-to-earth and practical, I want to end this morning with uh, personal sharing from a woman that I journeyed with in Christian community for 14 years back in Niagara. And this is one person's perspective. It casts a vision in poetic language like we've been talking about. It's not coercive, it's imaginative. It's been formed from lived experiences from a woman named Jolene Carter. And she writes, this fall marks my 11th year of being sick. What happened at a societal level during COVID is something not unfamiliar to those of us who have faced chronic or acute illness. The job loss, financial loss, uncertainty and confusion, the isolation and the broken connection. What you once knew and found normal has all of a sudden been torn from you and you now have no real choice other than to try to adapt and live in this weird new reality that, it's, that isn't comfortable, it's not desirable. You go through the stages of grief, you think you've arrived at acceptance but then you start all over again when you face a new limitation. The other day, she writes, I went to the doctor to talk about what this fall, what the winter may look like for me and how to navigate it. There are no concrete answers. She's dealing with, con with chronic fatigue and it's not on the list of knowns. And the advice as usual is just proceed with caution, live within your own limits and what you're comfortable with. I wish that my illness had made the list so that I could have concrete answers or be able to prove to myself and others that the caution that we're taking is reasonable. There are parts of me that deal with the trauma of developing an illness triggered by a virus in the first place. There are parts of me that remember how long it took after first getting sick just to be able to live the life I'm living now. There are parts of me that don't want my loved ones to be burdened by being caregivers if I end up sicker than I am for several months or even years. There are parts of me that are so sick of being sick, exhausted from being tired all the time, so I don't want to risk adding more of that to my plate. And there are parts of me that want to ignore the fact that I'm vulnerable for long-term consequences and live in the freedom of denial. There are parts of me that actually find a lot of joy in living as we are right now, even within the limitations I have. I've been challenged that I'm living in fear instead of faith and freedom. I don't think I am. I'm living in the messy reality of it all, living in the grays and unknowns, living in the courage to take risks when I'm comfortable or not take risks if I'm not, even if others think I should. Living in consideration of what it means to be a good steward of my own body and life. I'm living in faith while not putting God to the test. I'm living in this weird peace that knows that a healthy fear is, good, is a good thing, but not too much. I'm living in a constant state of learning, unlearning, and relearning. I'm living in the most abundant freedom I can within my circumstances. And I'm living in messy grace and compassion, knowing that it's going to look different for me in my, in my circumstances than it is for you. 
The reality is that there is no one size fits all to this, this season. Not even within the same community or family or friend circle or diagnosis. We're all learning as we go. We're trying to do the best we can. So how do we support one another when we're all living under different limitations and freedoms? For me, I love the analogy of a group going for a walk. I used to love walking and I still do, but it looks a lot different for me now than it once did. Some of my friends are brisk walkers. Others use a walker, a cane or a wheelchair. I take long pauses and can only do short jaunts or if we're strolling the botanical gardens or touring a city on a road trip, I sit in a wheelchair for most of it so that I can experience as much as I can. And in those moments, a loved one will push me. When we go out together, we match the pace of the slowest member and we do whatever we can to make sure we all have the fullest experience possible. That may limit the quicker walkers. It may humble the slower ones. Let's face it, it sucks having your needs affect other people. But it's the way that we best enjoy our time together and build our relationship together. Do I expect them to walk as slowly as me when I'm not around? Of course not. That would be silly. But the reality is, if they want to be with me, they either walk more slowly or figure out a way to help me enjoy their speed. At first glance, this may seem restrictive, but really both of these approaches free you up to be with that person and walk with them. It also gives you more. When we slow down to be with others, we may understand their world better, appreciate the world with new eyes. When we make it possible for others to whip around with more speed than they've experienced in years, maybe to pop wheelies in their wheelchair, then we bring them joy as well as having a bit of fun ourselves. There's so much that we gain by walking this way and by living this way. I hope we can all explore what it means and how that looks in the coming months and years. Respect, consideration, dignity, compassion, and joy that comes from working with each other's limitations in creative ways to gain the freedom to walk and be together. Will you walk with me? So where might we be going? Well, we can become a more intimate, a more vulnerable church. We can learn to walk together and not always rushing ahead or getting frustrated with those who aren't keeping up. We can be seen, we can be known, we can be forgiven, we can be loved as we point one another to the grace eternally offered by our Lord Jesus Christ. We, together with God, were co-creators of the future. God works independent of us, but also through us to ensure the forward development, the maturation, or the glorification, if you will, of the humanity, of hum all of humanity in Christ. We're still very much on the way as a collective and as individuals. The journey is the goal. The way is the goal. Continuing to walk with God and with one another is the goal. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, with peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you this week, church.